Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Myron. I'm the Director of Economic Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute. Um, start by thanking you all for coming. Thank our speaker, uh, Larry Lindsay, for coming to present and talk about his book. And thank in advance John Samples uh, from the Cato Institute, who's going to be the discussant. So before I get into an intro, let me mention a few quick announcements. Uh, please turn off your cell phones if you haven't done so. Uh, when we get to the Q&A, uh, please wait until you're called on. Please wait for the microphone, since this is being recorded and streamed and all that. So we need the audience to be able to hear your question online as well as uh, in the auditorium. And please state your name and affiliation before you ask your question. Um, after this is over, there's a lunch on the second floor. You just walk back out and go up that set of spiral staircases and go down the hall uh, for the lunch. And there are restrooms up on the second floor on your way to lunch if you're looking for those. So our purpose today is to hear uh, Larry Lindsay talk about his new book, uh, which you saw outside, which is available, uh, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class, How to Break Their Grip Forever. Um, so it's a very timely book in my view. I was glad that the date of the event worked out to be approximately where it is, shortly after uh, Donald Trump has apparently clinched the nomination. It seems at this point as though over the next six months, we're going to have an election between Hillary Clinton, on the one hand, who is a consummate insider, undoubtedly uh, as good an example of a member of the ruling class as one would want to find, between her and Donald Trump, whose appeal, sort of interestingly, seems to be to people who don't like outsiders, who don't like the ruling class, and so on. Although I don't think anyone would ever think of Donald Trump as anything other than a member of the ruling class, as a consummate insider uh, himself. Now, at the same time that these two are contrasting, at least in the image that they're trying to portray or their, their claim on their uh, appeal, it neither gives any indication to libertarians of, a, of appearing to believe in liberty. They both seem to think that they know better than everybody else on just about every subject, and they can tell us what to do about it and, and coerce us into doing those things uh, via the power of government. So this seems like an excellent time. Uh, for America to be coming to grips with how much it values liberty, and in particular, uh, how we can take it back. Uh, and that's exactly the subject of Dr. Lindsay's book. So let me introduce uh, Dr. Lindsay and then uh, John Samples uh, as well, and then we'll turn over to their comments. So Larry Lindsay is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Lindsay Group. He's held many leading positions in government, academia, and business. Prior to forming the Lindsay Group, he held the position of Assistant to the President and Director of the National Economic Council at the White House, as a Chief Economic Advisor to candidate George Bush during the 2000 presidential campaign. He served on the, as a Governor of the Federal Reserve Board from 91 to 97, as a Special Assistant to the President for Domestic Economic Policy during the first Bush administration. Yes. <laughs> I got confused. Uh, I've known him Larry a long time, so I got slightly mixed up. He served five years on the economics faculty of Harvard University and held the Arthur Burns Chair for Economic Research at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he's also been the managing director of economic strategies, a global consulting firm. Uh, Larry earned his AB, magna cum laude, from Bowdoin College and his MA and PhD from Harvard University. He was awarded the Outstanding Doctoral Dissertation Award by the National Tax Association and the City Corp Riston Fellow for Economic Research at the Manhattan Institute. He's the author of, according to his biography, three, but I believe the total is now four books, if we include today's presentation. Uh, and we're very really delighted to have him here. The commentary 
after Dr. Lindsay has presented will be by John Samples. Uh, John is Vice President and Publisher at the Cato Institute. He oversees the Cato Institute Press, which publishes books by Cato staff and external authors on policy topics and libertarian ideas. He also manages Cato's adjunct scholar program. Okay? Uh, John is the author of Struggle to Limit Government, A Modern Political History, and the Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, subject he's going to talk about again later today at a different event. Prior to joining Cato, John served eight years as director of the Georgetown University Press, and before that as vice president of the 20th Century Fund. He has published scholarly articles in numerous journals uh, and important made important contributions to edited volumes. He's also been featured in publications like USA Today, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and appeared on NPR, Fox, MSNBC, and many other outlets. And he holds a PhD in political science uh, from Rutgers University. Okay. So with those introductions, I'm happy to turn it over to Larry Lindsay to tell us about his book. And you're welcome to sit there, or you're welcome to stand, whatever is convenient for you. What would you prefer? I let the consumer decide. Okay, I'm a big believer in consumer sovereignty. Um, the uh, I thank you very much all for coming today, and I, I thank Cato for for hosting this event. Um, why did I write this book? Well, first of all, uh, as you might have detected from uh, your very generous resume, aside from the fact that. I change jobs every five years, which my father would say proves I can't hold a job. Um, a lot of that time was spent uh, in the ruling class. And it's hard to have Federal Reserve, Harvard, and three presidents on your resume and say, oh, no, I'm an outsider. I'm not. I'm, I'm an insider. Uh, but I'm also an outsider. I have a business. And uh, what I do is I uh, sort of make money by explaining to clients in a straight way uh, what the intersection of politics, policy, economics, and markets is. And uh, I understand, or at least I think I understand, what pressures the decision makers are in in government and how they're going to respond to various stimuli. And in general, I don't think it's a very good response, but it's still a predictable one. Which brought me to last year. L one of the things we picked up was uh, how angry the country was. And not only that, how justified the public was in its anger. Uh, the theme that we have been talking about is, is, is QE, not the Fed's QE, quantitative easing. Uh, we called it qualitative exhaustion. They're out of ideas. They don't know what else to do. And so what they do is more and more and more of the same, and more and more and more of the same uh, leads us to... Uh, I believe it was uh, Einstein's observation that the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Uh, that's why people are angry. It's not working. Uh, on top of the lack of success, which I will call incompetence, uh, we also have a, a good dose of arrogance. Uh, it almost goes without saying that when you look at people in government, they believe they know how to run your life better than you do. Now, I've served in government, and somehow I never actually thought that. I spent most of my time in government trying to beat back the bureaucrats. That was what I thought you were supposed to do in government. I'm, I'm the tribune of the people, and they're the permanent government, and we have tribunes to limit them. But, but that's, not, uh, that's certainly not what the current regime uh, believes. Um, and they do so in such a condescending way, because not only do they 
think they know how to run your life better than you do. It's basically because they don't think you're pretty incompetent and that they are not only morally superior, but intellectually superior. So of course they should be in charge of the government, and of course the government should be running your life, and it's as simple as that. And I think that's what defines an attitude of a, someone in the ruling class from someone who just serves in government, and I think that's an important uh, distinction. It's whether or not you really think you're a natural ruler or not, or whether you're there you know, as, to, to do a job. Well, uh, that was the problem, and so I began to do more and more research into why people are angry, and, and this led to the book. And then I watched the response uh, in, starting in July and August, um, and the people were angry, and how did they respond? Well, they saw on television a guy who was angry. He's always angry. You just watch him, like pouting, you know, and all the rest. And then for 13 years, they watched him say, you're fired. What could be better? I'm angry. This guy's angry. And when he gets there, he's going to tell the guys, you're fired. And that's exactly what we need. And I actually think that's the, as simple as that when it comes to the Trump phenomena. He has he's captured the public uh, imagination. I think the public is right again to be angry. I don't think he's necessarily the ideal solution. And so what I thought the book should do is, first of all, tell people that they're right to be angry, that the ruling class has taken powers the Constitution doesn't give them. They have taken tons of resources. They've taken power and resources. And they've done a lousy job with it and I highlight the incompetence in the second section. And then in the third section, I say, you know, but if you really want to change something, I don't say, don't vote for the guy who's angry. I was neutral about that and actually wanted those supporters to buy the book, I'll be honest. That was, that was the, the, true, uh, the true nature of my intent. Um, it's good self-interest for you, right? I, I'll admit to being self-interested. Um, I laid out some, some plausible reforms that I think need to be made. Uh, they have to do with regulatory reform. Uh, they have to do with budget reform. They have to do with reforming the Fed. Um, and um, that was the book. It was basically, hey, try these if you really want to change the world. So let me, uh, that is the highlight. That is why the book was written. Uh, I'm happy to say it got on the New York Times bestseller list. Obviously, the New York Times didn't read it before they put it there, um, or it would have been hopeless. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of happy. It's the first time of writing a, a sort of a more of a popular sort of book. Uh, some highlights. Uh, these are more my, my favorite points, uh, and I'm much more interested in allocating time to questions, so I will take less than uh, what you suggested. One of my favorite chapters was um, the progressive superiority complex. Now, this is a literature you can't imagine exists, but it does. It is why liberals are smarter than conservatives. And there are actually academic papers written with empirical evidence to show that liberals are smarter than conservatives. And my favorite article, it was popularized, was in Psychology Today. And it comes down, I'm going to paraphrase the, the heading, which was, 
of course liberals run academia, run the media, run arts and sciences, and run the government. Of course they do because they're smarter than conservatives. There obviously aren't enough smart conservatives out there to host those uh, areas. Well, I take a look at how they define liberal. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a great uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, article. Um, if that one doesn't make you mad at them, uh, nothing will. Uh, I do urge you to, A, buy the book. You can then photocopy that chapter and give it to your friends and see what they think. If you want to make them mad, too. Liberals think they're smarter, and that's part of the ruling class. They think they're smarter than the rest of us. Um, they also think they're morally superior to the rest of us, and that is also contradicted by the evidence. But uh, I'll leave it for you to, to find that out in the book. Uh, then in terms of incompetence, um, one area that I've uh, studied all my life is inequality. Um, and uh, there's lots of causes of it, and um, one can argue about uh, why inequality is trending up. But I found it interesting because this is what progressives talk about the most. Inequality, inequality, we have to do something about inequality. Well, okay. Problem is that when they get in office, inequality rises faster under progressive presidents than it does under conservative presidents. The Census Bureau puts out three measures of income inequality, uh, the Gini, the log normal, and the, the tile index. And um, under all three, it rose faster under Barack Obama than it did under George Bush. Under all three, it rose faster under Bill Clinton than it did under Ronald Reagan. So yes, they talk about it, but they're absolutely incompetent about doing something about it. When they get in office so they can do anything they want, inequality gets worse faster than it does under conservative presidents. So no one campaigns on making inequality higher. They campaign on the reverse, but they fail miserably at it. And it's not for want of trying. For example, in the first six years of the Obama administration, transfer the annual rate of transfer payments in America rose by $500 billion. We now have 18% of all personal income received in America is a transfer payment. It is not for want of trying that the government is failing. It's that they're going about doing it the wrong way. Of course, what they've forgotten, which I think is fairly obvious is what all those people who are morally inferior and intellectually inferior, i.e. the rest of us, know, is that people most generally don't work for fun. They work for money. They work to pay the bills. So if you give people money not to work, they won't work. And there's a lot of literature out there, including from the Urban Institute, the Hamilton Project, which is uh, Hillary's think tank in waiting, that the marginal tax rate on people making thirty to fifty thousand dollars, if you include the loss of benefits, is fifty to eighty percent. Well, guess what? People don't go to work when tax rates are fifty to eighty percent. 
So Barack Obama is going to go down as the first president in American history to leave office with fewer two-earner households than when he took office. Two-thirds of all the net household formation under Barack Obama has been in households with zero wage earners. Now, how the heck are you going to create a more equal society when two-thirds of your new families don't have anyone working in them? There's no way you could redistribute money and expect families with no one working in them to sort of move up the income ladder. It just isn't going to happen. So they have a mathematical failure uh, that in spite of their rhetoric, in spite of their will be generous and say good intentions, um, their good intentions lead to failure. And I lay that out in the book. Um, finally, uh, and on a, a somewhat cheery note, I, I look at the politics of this. When voters are surveyed, they invariably think more government is bad for growth, less government is good for growth, Higher taxes are bad for growth. Lower taxes are good for growth. And when the question is put together, would you prefer higher taxes and more government services or lower taxes and less government services, less wins? In fact, the month after Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney, the less government, less services side won by 22 points. Whoa, how can Obama win by four and everything he stood for lose by 22? Well, I concluded it's because that isn't what we're running the campaign on. If we simply run the campaign on less government, more control of your own lives, more control of your own money, and that's it. We win. Oops, I've stopped being an objective observer. Our side, less government wins easily. The other side wins because they like to confuse the issue with a whole lot of micro-targeting stuff, and that's what you're hearing. Oh, they're anti this and they're anti that, or they're anti the other thing, and they hate, and they're haters, and da da, -da. That's, what the, that's the spin, that's how they win. So we have to be careful uh, how we win this election, but if we keep it focused on the simple issue of do you want more government or less government, less government will win, and that's why in the end, I think we're going to put an end to the current ruling class. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, let me begin by saying that um, this is a very good book. It's a book I recommend that you buy. Uh, I would buy it if I didn't, uh, hadn't already read it for this. Uh, and there's several reasons why it's a good book. And in many ways, it's the kind of book I've always liked. Um, that is, to, and it seems to me often, perhaps because of my inveterate pessimism, uh, so, so rarely appears today, which is a really capable intellectual, by the way, 
I'll explain this in a minute. A really capable policy intellectual with loads of experience writing a book that people can, is actually accessible, and not only accessible, but actually is filled with really good reasoning, really good data, and you can rely on the book. It's not a, a crazy book or anything like that, or it's not a book that is uh, dubbed down, it, but it is written well. Uh, the context in the book is well set, the, talk, the discussion of progressivism, the discussion of the founding and those kinds of arguments, all, and the, the, the centrality of liberty to the founding is well argued in this book. Uh, and throughout, then you come to the chapters that are just chock full of data. He, he brings to bear, as you might expect, you heard about his history, if you know anything about him, he knows he's a very capable economist, and so those chapters are satisfying for the reader, but they're not uh, abstruse, abstract, and difficult, uh, impossible to understand, unlike most economists. Uh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> the, uh, but it's true. Um, I would like to say a word in particular that hasn't been said yet in his chapter on the Fed. This is really one of the best things I've read on the Fed. Now, I don't know if you're like me, uh, if you're one of those people that uh, you get like four or five sentences into a blog post about the Fed and you just sort of go, ah, next, you know, you move on to the next thing. Because I don't think, does the word velocity appear in this book? I think it doesn't, right? So this is, it's an excellent book on the economics of the Fed, but also on the politics and, quite, and also about excluding kind of uh, marginal points of view that are against the Fed. And, but he gives you reasons why. It's really, really quite good. The other thing I would say about it that I like a lot is the reforms that are proposed are interesting and new, right? We're not just going through yet another march through the usual set of uh, customers. That is, the proposed reforms we all know should be done or that we have heard should be done. We've heard the reasoning for. Uh, Dr. Lindsay has thought about these issues, and he has he set forth reforms. So I'm about to say a bunch of stuff that indicates reservations about one thesis. But please be aware in that none of that means that this book is not a fine book or that you should not buy the book above all. Apparently, a lot of people are anyway. So here are my reservations. The first is the title. Now, my bet here is that this title was foisted on Dr. Lindsay by his publisher. <laughs> the publisher read the book and said, wow, it's a good book, but you know, you've got to get people's blood boiling because, as he said, it's already boiling. This is not a book about a conspiracy. There is no evidence in this book that it is a conspiracy. There is no evidence that uh, the author believes it's a conspiracy. And it is not a book about a conspiracy. And I say that, why? Because people who put conspiracies in the title of their book are crazy people, generally speaking. And this is a good book. I've already told you that. So that was not a good idea. But OK, as long as you know that it's not really that. The other term that I would have a slight reservation is the term the ruling class. Now, it's a very helpful kind of heuristic, really, to sort of talk about the ruling class and, and to see them across time as uh, acting as a person. Okay, I understand that. But when you read the book and you think about it for a while, you realize they're not. And it sort of violates kind of methodological individualism, all the stuff we libertarians are for. And it sort of gives this 
this uh, sense of being too personal, too, uh, too much of a personification for my taste. However, what it is is a continuation of a long history of discussion of uh, essentially elites. James Burnham in the 1940s, the managerial revolution, both in the economy and politics. In the 1970s, uh, some discussions on both the left and the right of a so-called new class. Right? And so the ruling class is a continuation of that. It's really about the administrative state and uh, progressivism, which is uh, the justification apologia for the administrative state. That's basically what this is about. But of course, if they put uh, on the, if the title had been uh, the administrative state and how to change it, he wouldn't. You know, I think his publisher would not have been wild about that. Uh, just a side note, real quick, on the administrative state. One surprising thing I think about this is there's. Uh, if the book's about the administrative state, the agencies, the exercise a great deal of discretion, it's, it's odd because there's not about a lot about Medicare and Medicaid in the book. And in fact, both of those are rapidly becoming parts, not just you think of them as parts of the welfare state. Obamacare is a, a big redistribution, so that's welfare state. But it's also got all this sort of administrative discretion in amazing amounts, and of course, Medicaid always did. Um, so... Those are the small things. I want to talk about one thing in general, and that is the notion that uh, this that made in, the, in this book and is assumed very generally by a lot of people is that indeed the libertarian project is a majoritarian project. There, in the aforementioned James Burnham in uh, 1944, after he decided to stop being a Trotskyite, his first book thereafter was called The Machiavellians, Defenders of Freedom, A Defense of Political Truth Against Wishful Thinking. So what I'm going to make the case for very briefly today is the idea at this point, or indeed in future times, that uh, the case for liberty is going to be carried for a by a majority is in fact wishful thinking. Let me begin by saying that uh, I come out of about 15 years or so of working, as Jeff mentioned, in campaign finance. For the last 40, getting on 50 years, uh, public opinion polls have, have uh, revealed that about 60% of Americans favor uh, campaign finance reform, that is restrictions on political liberties, and uh, maybe 40% are against it. Uh, there's been, to be sure, there's a great deal of support, 90% or more for the First Amendment. But when you come to specifics about First Amendment rights, sometimes you find majority support, sometimes you don't. This is my background. This is the difficult area where I learned about democracy and um, liberty. Um, so this is book, in the end, is around a kind of idea that we have strongly, many of us have had, which is elites versus the people, and the people are on the side of liberty, and the elites, the ruling class, and so on, are not. Here's the problems with that, some evidence. No, and none of the evidence, none of the evidence in his book, and none of the evidence that I'm about to cite is knocked down dead. It's a sort of accumulation issue. First of all, consider the two presidential candidates we have both of which are most extraordinarily uh, antagonistic to limited government, perhaps in my lifetime. And yet, 
they will be running, and pretty soon the Republican one, Republican candidate, will probably have over 50% of the polls will show 50% of GOP support. That doesn't strike me as good evidence for the thesis that the majorities want liberty, even in the Republican Party. Now we get to our chart. As you can see, this is the Stimson Policy Mood Index uh, from 1952 to 2012. It's uh, constructed by a man named James Stimson, a political scientist at University of North Carolina. What he did was uh, sort of this concrete issue about liberty. He started looking at public opinion polls and, and on specific policy issues where, for example, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You have a public opinion poll, you call people up, or now you do it on the internet, and you say, do you think that government should be doing more, doing less, or about the same with regard to education? And then you take education out and you put healthcare in and da da da. For the end of this uh, uh, undertaking, uh, this is about 400 separate questions that are create, used to create this index. The index itself is a way of, of uh, tracing what he calls the policy mood. And the policy mood is, do you want more government? That's you're a liberal. You want less government? That's, that's further down the chart. He calls it a conservative. Or then there's about the same, which sort of drops out. And that's a problem with it. But let's go with it. Let me talk about the four points here. So this is, in a sense, you can see on the y-axis the percent liberal. That is, it's a, the higher up you are on the chart, the more the public opinion wants more government. Public opinion, again, measured not on one or two particular uh, questions or an abstract question, but asking people specifically about policy issues. Let's, you, can, you can see that sometimes the public loses the taste for more government. In fact, it can be dramatic and quite sharp. Look at point A there. That is the 10 years before the Reagan administration. And it's, no, it's not a surprise that at, uh, at point A, right after point A, Ronald Reagan is elected president of the United States. And indeed, that's the lowest point, uh, apart from early 1950s, for support for more government in the United States. However, check out point B. Point B is a long upward slope during the, largely during the Reagan administration. And what it culminates in, if you're old enough to remember, is a thousand points of light and a kinder, gentler administration. This would be the argument Stimson would make. But you see a sh what Reagan gives you is a sharp desire for more government in the public opinion polls, which is what we're talking about here. Part C is now, actually this runs out in 2012. If we had 2014 up, we'd see that this um, figure, this line continues to go down. It's not as anywhere near as uh, low as the Reagan era, but it's still going down. And there is in this data another side to this, which is that the public opinion about the size of government, scope of government, continues to go opposite whatever happens. So President Obama has been associated with a drop, whereas President Reagan was associated with an increased desire for government. So the public opinion goes the other way. It, it continued down to 2014. And I should say the expectation would be that over the next four years under President Clinton, and by the way, thanks to all the 
primary voters that made it possible for me to say that uh, this time, um, I would say that it will continue to drop. That is, the desire for more government will continue to drop. And that's a good thing, except it's in reaction in part to a government being expanded. Um, so the big story, now the other final point is D, which I don't want to forget, because in a sense, that's the most important point of all. If you look at point D, you see the number is 50%. What that means is that there has never been a time since the early 1950s in which more people wanted uh, to reduce government than wanted to expand it. Let me repeat that. Based on 400 survey opinion questions over time, asking about specific things, there has never been a time since the early 50s when more people wanted to reduce government than to expand it. Now, you, there's quibbles around all of that. You can question the methodology. We can do all that stuff. However, this does seem to catch reality against what could be wishful thinking. I could go into, and uh, I may well, I mean, if you look at things about even just Republican voters, you see that, for example, 55% uh, of GOP voters thought immigrants and refugees coming into the United States posed a critical threat to the country, for example. Um, in 2014, 76% of Republicans in the public said protecting jobs was a very important goal. Protecting jobs, of course, being a kind of dog whistle on protectionism. Um, Social Security, I haven't even talked about entitlements. And if you read the entitlement literature, the answer is, if you give me $18 trillion, I'll create a popular program. But that doesn't mean people don't want it, right? On um, Social Security, uh, about 10% of Republican voters favor cutting it. 42% uh, of Republican voters want to expand that spending. That would be the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton position. 9% uh, of Republican leaders uh, endorse expanding it. Consider also, just go over a couple of things. The one that began to change my mind was the, was the Medicare Part D, which you recall was passed in 2004. I was studying for my second book, the 1990s, and I discovered in 1994, the year the Republican Party took the House of Representatives back, that something on the order of 75% of people supported Medicaid Part D, Medicare Part D. And it, that support continued over the next, next decade. The only question was, how in the world did it take so long to get the second major healthcare expansion in the last 20 years or so? How, why did it take so long when 75, 80% of the public supports it? Um, keep in mind also two other major expansions of healthcare during that period. You can say they were done against the public, and to some degree, with the uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, you've got some evidence about support, uh, uh, opposition to it, but it did get through the system and it had substantial support. Um, so what we have here is the claim that on the a problem, because it was great, because the elites are bad. That is, the ruling class, or let's just say the administrative state, is a problem for us. 
And we are libertarians or liberals of the old kind of uh, fashion, want liberty, are in fact that the administrative state is not going to bring liberty. Um, however, what's the next alternative? Here, this is, I have offered evidence that we need to think about this and think about whether it's wishful thinking. There is, I think, we are as libertarians and people like-minded are saved from the idea that uh, nonetheless, if we accept these uh, positions and data I've set out, that we're in a position where we're saying that we're better than you, that we are taking on the attitudes that are reprehensible, are true. I mean, Dr. Lindsay saw, has seen a lot more of it than I have, but it's, it's there. Because remember, the libertarian position is politics is messed up. People aren't messed up. We believe in, if, if people were messed up in their economic lives, in their private lives, then there'd be no reason to give them liberty. You'd have to control them. We think they can do the job there. That's part of the theory. And that's precisely why we want limited government. But when people get involved in politics because of a certain set of reasons, if you read Ilya Solman, if you read an excellent new book by a non-libertarian, Larry Bartels, Democracy for Realists, what you will see is that politics just doesn't bring out good decision-making in people. The incentives are terrible, and so on. So... Back to Burnham. The Machiavellian book is about, is about defenders of freedom, but it's also about the inevitability of elites. And James Madison, to bring another person to mind, Federalist Number 10 is about the inevitability of elites. In Federalist Number 10, Madison says, it might be the case that some people would make better decisions than the people as a whole, as a collective, would make directly. That, that was the case for representation. So I don't know where we go from here, but I want to challenge this, and I don't know specifics. What, what would a libertarian elite look like? How could, it be, how could it be successful? And so on. But what I do think is we need to start thinking and critically about the idea that populism is the answer. And in, in 2016, 2016 is a year to have real questions about populism. Thanks. Thank you very much. So, uh, I think we're going to start with a quick response. Thank you. It, it, look forward to questions. It's great to have a discussant with whom you agree. Um, uh, yes, they foisted conspiracies on me, um, and and I'm being punished for it. I got a, I've, I've, I've been doing um, I've been doing talk radio, and I recently got a call from a radio show that's on from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. that specializes in discussions of things like UFOs and the paranormal, and I must have seen the word conspiracy, and that's what they wanted. So I, I I'm not going to be on that radio show. Yes, um, uh, it's to sell a book. Uh, secondly, yes, the real enemy is the administrative state. Um, I would just add that the liberal, or more precisely progressives, are the political front for the administrative state, starting with Wilson and all the rest. And so, but if I call it the administrative state, nobody buys the book. If I call it the progressives or the liberals, okay. Self-interest, again, sometimes trumps accuracy in descriptions. 
The final point is about majoritarianism. And again, uh, I do not argue with this challenge. If, if I left the book without the hope that we could form a majority, no one would buy the book. So that's one reason I cited the evidence that is available that we can. I actually think, and here's where I'm going to have, I agree with 2.7 of your three points. And I'm going to just talk a minute about the point three. And here is the bias in the question there. Here's something that isn't going well. And you ask, should government do more or less about it? Well, if it's not doing well, you think inherently more should be done about it. And if your only option is should government do more, you probably say, yeah, why not? I mean, it's not going well. Actually, um, that's the reason why we have to pick and choose our arguments well. We can pick and choose which issues we want to run on in order to highlight our case. The left does it all the time. So for example, here's two issues where I think we're on the verge of a majority. The first is guns. I think we've won where we have the majority on guns. Second Amendment polls well all the time. I talk about it in the book. It's their, their reforms are going to be failures or simply an exercise for more power. But guns is a good example where if we frame the issue, we win. The second where I think people are coming around is schools, where I think school choice is now a very appealing proposition. Uh, parents find it more appealing than people in general. So the more you know, the more you don't think government should, uh, should be in charge. Taxes is always a winner. So again, I agree that we have a majoritarian challenge. I agree with Madison. Um, I agree with Burnham that in the end, uh, you're stuck with the elites running things, mainly because everyone else wants to get on with their lives, right? I mean, that's the very practical reason. But I do think that a libertarian elite running a well uh, thought out campaign uh, is able to attain a majority. Thank you. So let me offer a brief comment of my own and uh, the first question, and then we'll open it up more broadly. So I enjoyed the book very much. I completely agree with John that people should buy it and should read it. And I was basically 100% with you for the first two thirds. The part where I'm not sure I can't, am convinced is the, the last third about how we actually change this. And the reason, to take one example, is that I. To, the general reason is I'm nervous about the ability of changes in institutions or rules to have a big effect on the outcomes without also changing people's minds about whether those policies made sense in the first place. So to give one example, you discuss entitlements, and we both, I'm sure we agree that entitlements are out of control. If nothing is done, it will completely wreck the economy, uh, and so on and so forth. And it would be much, much better if we used rules that looked forward and took account of all the commitments that governments have made for Social Security, Medicare, and so on into the distant future and recognize that our explicit debt, the number that you hear on the news, 100% of GDP or something like that, is in fact a way underestimate. The commitments that we are subject to is vastly in excess of that. But using a better accounting system that recognized that explicitly 
Okay? I don't think we'll convince many people by itself that we should have less Medicare. They need to be convinced even more that Medicare does all these other bad things of distorting prices in the healthcare system, encouraging excessive consumption of healthcare. If we can't change the notion that everybody should always get as much healthcare whenever they want at somebody else's expense, I fear that any new accounting system will simply be circumvented some, by some even more clever tweak to the accounting system by exactly the ruling class. So let me sort of put that out there as the first question, if you want to comment on that, and then we'll open it up. Um, uh, geez, a host of agreement here. <laughs> um, let me start off with, um, with Social Security. Um, and I, again, some of my um, checkered past when I've been in the government, I think the, um, here's again a matter of phrasing, and people do know that Social Security is broke and the young people think it's going to, they're never going to get anything. If we made one simple change that no one would understand the details of, but I'm gonna say it the way it actually is, we can guarantee the current benefit structure completely protected for inflation forever without raising taxes. Let me say it again. We can guarantee the current benefit structure fully protected for inflation forever without raising taxes. Sound like a winner? And what do we have to do? What, what's the change? That, 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 that All we have to do is go to the words fully protected for inflation. Right now, we're, these things are called bend points. In the formula for Social Security, the bend points, which determine your original benefit, are indexed for wage growth. If you index them for inflation, you maintain the current benefit structure. But if you index them for wage growth, real benefits rise over time. So if my son and I both had real incomes of $50,000, under current law, he gets more benefits than I do in real terms. Well, if you've got a system going broke, the first thing you do is make sure benefits don't go up. Right? That's all I'm saying. Let's not raise benefits. If you do that, plug it through the Social Security Administration model, you have 75 year, which is what they do, actuarial balance, and you have a huge surplus in year 75. So all we have to do here is be as clever as the left is. I think I said things in a pretty straightforward way. Guarantee it forever current benefit structure fully protected for inflation. Okay, let's do it. Now, we're not going to cut benefits. If the libertarians want to cut benefits, you're going to lose. Okay. <laughs> but if you say what I just said, hey, that sounds like a good thing, and you go to college campuses and you say, you know, guys, I, don't, I know you're not going get, to get, think you're going to get benefits. If you vote for me, we will guarantee you the same benefits your parents have and your grandparents have fully protected for inflation. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Okay. Questions? Please remember to uh, raise your hand so the mic can come over and to uh, state your name and affiliation uh, before your question. So we'll start down here in the front. 
Hi, uh, Chuck Woolery, uh, former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations. Really appreciate the context of the book about you know, the, the problem of government and uh, people being the solution. Uh, but everything seemed to be in the context of economics and in, within the context of America. You know, if, if we look at the threats that are coming at us from economics, from environmental issues, from pandemics, from security issues, from you, you name the threats. So any one of these factors could change our conditions here instantly. And I, I don't see so much Americans interested in, in freedom as much as security, which these other things seem to, to, to imply that they're at risk. And so there's a, there's a, uh, a it seemed to be a disconnect there in, in what I heard from the reality in which we live versus the con construct in our head about freedom. And uh, that we seem, that there seems to be a need to be a balancing of freedom and security and that this doesn't address that at all. He who would give up a little, who would give up essential freedoms for little temporary safety deserves neither freedom nor safety. Um, that was Franklin, I believe. Um, Look, I was in the West Wing on 9-11. The Secret Service ran down the hall shouting, run, 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 incoming plane. I won't bore you with the rest of the day or what happened afterwards. But that is a memory that sticks in one's mind about security. And where I my philosophy would come from, uh, and this sort of gelled it, is what um, uh, the political uh, e economy literature, Buchanan, people like that, would call theory of clubs. You have one rule for the people inside the club, and you have another rule about excluding people from joining the club or making it difficult for people. And that's the only way you can run a, a system. And I think security fits in that area. And are we doing uh, as good a job as we could on security? I don't know, and there's a balance of liberty there. I will tell you, having been in government after 9-11, that we're not getting the liberty part of the security correct. Um, I was, I'm embarrassed by this constantly, but we had no choice. The first thing we had to do was get the airplanes flying and we had to make, give people the comfort level to get on them. Most of what we now call airport security is targeted at providing the comfort level, the appearance of safety. You know, I, I, it's just true. I don't think it's bad because that appearance of safety is also important as well as actual safety. I would probably, I mean, safety is an objective. I don't think we progressed. First, you have to give people the appearance of safety. Then you want to actually refine it, and we're going to go on. The more scary phenomena was a, um, a working group I was in right after the anthrax attacks. And here's where I think we need to really focus on the administrative state. Uh, we were doing all kinds of scenarios. Uh, this was a case of uh, anthrax was distributed in O'Hare Airport and therefore it was going to spread quickly around the country. 
that was the scenario. Um, most of the people in the room were public health people and military people. And they had a very easy solution, which was nationwide quarantine. You basically prevent the movement of people between standard metropolitan statistical areas. Well, I can understand why a public health person or a military person would go there. So then it was my turn, and I said, I started, this is my logic. I said, are you aware that on any given day, 900,000 people are outside their SMSA on business travel? Are you going to prevent them from returning home to their families? And the answer was yes. And then I said, um, how are you going to do it? And they said, the National Guard. And then I said, and who's going to defend the supermarkets? And they said, what? And I said, well, about a quarter of those 900,000 people are truckers who are driving goods, food, basically west to east across America. You've got about three days stockpiles in the supermarkets. It won't last long once a panic starts. As I said, who's going to defend the supermarkets? Well, the meeting adjourned in about three minutes, and I was never invited to another meeting. <laughs> so what I think one of the problems we have with the administrative state, and this gets right to your point, is that inherently it is siloed. We tend to put experts in charge. Who wouldn't want an expert to run a field? Of course, they're experts, right? But an expert, by definition, thinks that the subject matter that he or she is studying is the most important to the exclusion of others. And what we actually need is generalists, and I, what I call for in the book is the Congress. We elect them as generalists. That's where the decision-making should go. And uh, let the experts uh, testify before Congress, and let Congress make the rule changes. And you said you were the United Nations Association. Let me say one other thing that I cut from the book because it was too controversial. The other piece of the administrative state and the progressives is to move things away from democratic checks. And the best way to do it is through international treaty. And the Paris Agreement, to me, is exactly that. I can't see any more fundamental attack on our liberty than international agreements affecting climate change. It's the way they're just going to ram that right through the, and take a lot of liberty from us. Other questions? Right here in front. Um, I'm Owen Amber. I chair AIM's Strategy Markup Language Committee. Strategy Markup Language is an international standard for strategic and performance plans and reports. Uh, it seems that um, evolutionary dynamics have endowed us with genetic predispositions to want to be members of groups and also to fork, focus on short-term threats rather than long-term consequences. How do we overcome those predispositions to deal with uh, our irrationalities that are based upon, you know, prehistoric or, or historic, you know, olden times threats and rather than modern-day realities? The Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are extremely unique. They are the only foundational documents I could find, there may be others, 
that actually reverse the usual relationship where we traditionally work for the government in return for security, and I discuss that in the book, where finally we say this government should work for us to protect liberty, that they're unique. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think it is a unique idea. It is therefore genetically or historically a losing idea. However, I think that's all the more important why we need to stand up and say, yes, it may be a losing idea, but my God, hasn't it paid off well? I mean, just look at how much better we are because we have liberty than those people who don't. And we need to harp on that over and over again. It's not an easy one to win. You're right. Question on the side. Uh, Pat Span, just myself. I um, couldn't help but think back when I was in school and uh, studying uh, Plato's Republic about the philosopher kings, when the Clintons were in charge, I used to use that reference a lot. And I'm wondering, based on, well, Plato's, what, 3,500 years ago, um, in the, the concept of philosopher kings, which in, is in line with, I think, with the, you know, the leaders, the elites in the administrative state, are we just, you know, going, you know, pushing against the tide? Is it just some sort of a human nature that, um, like you said, the rest of us just want to be left alone but there's, I think, somehow in the, with the New Deal types, they, uh, the whole idea of you start with your degrees in political science and stay in government and run the country the rest of your life, is, is, it, is there no real solution? Are we going against some sort of human nature? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and, and that's why their words, their code words are experts and things like that. The, our reverse code word is democracy. Wilson, who started this really off, said that you really, you know, Congress is just so messy. I mean, they don't know, how could you, how could you run a modern economy, which now is industrial and all the rest, on notions that were created when we were using horse and buggies? Okay, that's, that's their claim. Of course you need experts. And that has an intuitive appeal. The pharaohs needed scribes who actually could read, write, and do math, right? Okay, we need experts. The poll-tested, focus group-tested response to that is democracy. The ex and, the, and the founding fathers actually put it in there. The president goes every year talk about the State of the Union, and propose changes to make the Union run better. That is how the administrative state should propose changes. Then the generalists should vote on them. There's a bill called uh, the RAINS Act, which would actually turn regulatory state that way. Will it guarantee that the regulatory state will wither on the vine? No but it will break them, put a break on them, and it is using the best word we have, democracy, to, um, to do it. I think John wanted to So comment. the Plato example is a good one, and one becomes more and more convinced of it uh, as, day, as the days pass, uh, which suggests that this is, as you suggest, I mean, it's a deep part of human experience. But I would there's another part to the Plato part, which is uh, 
it's, it's about philosophers ruling and all of that, but there's a willingness to say that that's not going to happen. And then the question is posed, why would a philosopher ever become involved in this? I mean, this is a, actually a Cato problem. That is, why become involved in politics? It's a messy, dirty, uh, pretty dull business. And the answer that's in Plato's Republic is, why would you come down to the city? Why would the philosophers try to rule and get involved in politics? And the answer is to prevent worse from ruling. That's the, that's the answer. And ultimately, the solution here has to be that you have an elite that is, and goes to this question of uh, far distant issues, is you got to have, one way or the other, an elite that is better than the one described in uh, Dr. Lindsay's book. And where we would get that kind, I mean... We've done a pretty good job in the last 30 years in some ways of trying to create a counter-administrative state, counter-New Deal uh, elite. We haven't been completely successful, but, you know, I mean, look at Dr. Lindsay's career. That's an example. And I think that is one of the questions. Can you have, can people who are liberty-minded get involved with the administrative state and make a big difference? Other questions? Yes, right here. Hello, my name is uh, Juan Butari. I'm retired foreign service economist. I, there was a reference to the recent primary process in the GOP, and uh, the insinuation was, of course, that uh, many people are not satisfied with the outcome. Recently, a couple of economists published an article on the New York Times suggesting that the process whereby the electoral outcome was determined was a very flawed one. So my question is, really, uh, how can that process, the process of selecting who the candidate would be, uh, be improved, uh, given that the outcome has left many people dissatisfied? I just, I'm throwing that out to see your reaction. I'm about to be very unpopular, and let me start by saying I do not like the outcome, but I think the process ain't so bad. Um, and here would be my, my various defenses of it. I mean, can, can it be improved? Yes. But the Republican Party had 17 people running. To talk about openness, you can't have more openness. And the quality of the candidates, as resume value goes in running for, is very high. You know, experienced governors, uh, senators, there's a lot of diversity in terms of uh, the ideological mix. So it was very open. The second fact is there was record participation. I mean, we're going to have something like 40% of all of the November voters having voted in a primary. That is utterly unprecedented in American history. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic outcome. So more participation and more openness to me seem pretty good. Now, the, the, where people get down to, first of all, the, the big lie was that the structure was rigged against Donald Trump. That is factually untrue. 
And it wasn't just that the same rules applied to everyone. In fact, the rules favored the candidate who got a plurality. Donald Trump consistently got a bigger percentage of delegates than he did votes. So he created this into, it was a complete whole cloth fabrication that he was being treated unfairly and that was part of it. And there I don't think it's the process, I think it's the media for not doing a fact check here and telling, telling the truth about it. But if you're going to start with 17 candidates, how else would you do it but via a serial process? And you need a mix of proportional and winner-take-all. You need the winner-take-all in order to produce decisiveness. The winner-take-all should come later in the process. The Democrats, on the other hand, have a completely rigged system where they run a proportional process, which means voters really don't matter because you need overwhelmingness in the part of the voters to make a difference in a proportional sense. And then they let the superdelegates pick the nominee. So... If you ask me how I would design a system, it ain't perfect. I, you know, there's the, um, the, the, f the big state, little state plan that's been discussed. You could rearrange the deck chairs. But fundamentally, I think the Republicans have a good process, even though I don't like the outcome. So, do you want to follow up? Yeah. I grant your point, but we have had an outcome where the, apparently the elected candidate has been elected by a plurality, not a majority necessarily. So uh, can the process be changed so as to reflect at least for the identification of who the candidate will be, a process that uh, will be based on a majority, not on a plurality? And uh, just by, by the way, you're starting with 17 uh, candidates uh, in what seemed as circles, frankly, wasn't uh, very encouraging. Well, so your, your ways of getting it is first you'd have to have pre-qualification rules. No, you can't run. Well, that doesn't sound like a good alternative. Um, second thing you could do in your case to get to be, quote, fair or broader is you could have a purely proportional system. And that was sort of the open convention theory. Um, you know, in the um, English-speaking world, we have tended to reject proportionality in favor of decisiveness. Uh, that's why we have winner-take-all primaries. And if you're going to have any element of decisiveness, you have to have a winner-take-all primary. And to do it, to do the mix right, you want to have them laid in the process. So the proportional guys, proportional early states narrow the field. And then the later states where winner-take-all, you know, decide the, the race. I, that seems to me to be a very plausible way of doing things. So it's, I wanted to respond. It seems the question to me is how big a disaster do you think this year is? Because that's going to, to, to affect your, your judgment. And part of the answer is we don't know yet how big a disaster it is. As time has gone on, I have become more and more skeptical of the changes, the so-called reforms of the mid-1970s that have brought us to this pass uh, by the, and also brought us to 2004 or whatever. I mean, they were fundamental changes in uh, the way the parties chose their presidential. Now, I will quickly say, you know, in 1972, 73, whatever, the elites that brought you the Vietnam War and uh, 
had not dealt with civil rights appropriately at all in the 1960s and before. Okay, that was, that was a reaction to that. Um, however, you have to ask the question, which one is going to give you, if you're concerned about liberty, or is a re revitalized party structure that exercises uh, some formative power on who gets nominations and excludes some people, like people with no experience at all, or people have certain views that would be dangerous to the system, uh, is that going to give you on the long term more liberty than the 1974 reforms? And I'm open more and more over time to the idea that, yes, revived parties are the way to go. What and strong ones. Again? What's that? What was, I just missed your last word. The uh, I'm just open to the idea that revived parties are that are stronger parties that make that affect the nomination process. Uh, without ultimately, you're going to have to have some kind of support, but that that's a better idea. But again, this goes back. Do you think this is like 2016 is a real disaster or not? If you do, then something's really wrong here. But if you don't, you think it was just an accidental mistake because there were 10 candidates and the, the order of voting was wrong, you know. Then we're, we'll, that's fine. We'll, we'll be all right later. It'll, be, it'll just go along the way it is. I'm not sure which is true. We'll probably know in December if it's a real disaster or not. Question back there or something? Yeah. Wait for the mic. Microphone's coming. Hi, I'm David Bowes with Cato. Um, I want to raise a question about what do you mean by ruling class? What's the, what's the distinction between ruling class, the rest of America? And does it matter in historical, sociological, political terms that from, from what I would perceive the ruling class to be, it is fairly open to bright young people from all over the world. We have recently had several Republican presidents and nominees who were the children and grandchildren of great wealth. But on the Democratic side, um, we've had the son of a single mother, the son of a rake and a rambling man. Um, there's been a good bit of opening. The chairman of the Federal Reserve recently was the son of a druggist in South Carolina. Um, is, is that relevant? We could all become part of the ruling class if we chose to, right? Yes, the, the word you're using is meritocracy, um, and I would just mention the word Singapore, uh, which isn't exactly a libertarian state, but, it, you know, that's, that is the good side of an administrative state that is an open administrative state, and yes, I think we have probably the best rules for getting into the administrative state that could be designed. Here is the flaw and why the administrative state is a problem to me, having been a member of it and advantaged by all the rules and all the rest of it. And it comes to what I would call an old statistical term, sample selection bias. I looked around at the people who were with me in the administrative state and the ones who are, for want of a better word, are my clients now. The difference in their tastes is people who go into the administrative state generally do so because they have a preference for power. Those who do not go into the administrative state generally have a preference for money. 
that's fine, free to choose and all the rest. But if you're going into the state because you have a preference for power, it is going to skew your decision making. The typical member of that, really of the administrative state, generally does believe that they are smarter than and have better moral compass than the people, the unwashed masses who are outside of that. The people want to make money generally think they're smarter, but they don't think they're any more moral. And so uh, what scares me and why I don't like an administrative state, even an open one, an meritocratic one, is that it tends to produce um, self-aggrandizing elites um, uh, to run it, entitled human beings who think they naturally belong there. And that's, what I, that's where the word ruling class comes from. That they think the rest of us are incapable, that they think the government should run it, we have any powers necessary, and that they are the natural people to run the government. So another question in the back, in the middle? I read your stuff all the time. Hi, uh, Onda Greeny. I have a... Uh, coffee startup uh, focusing on Yemen. And uh, I used to be in the military. Government works slowly. I have a startup. I can work at whatever pace I like. Uh, you mentioned uh, climate change in passing. I'm curious, what do you see as a solution for a problem where we, I would say, obviously need coordination beyond national boundaries if we are to uh, tackle this problem? So how can we uh, maintain our liberty as a, as a nation? but also come up with a solution. All right, so I'm a numbers guy. That's what I've done all my life. That's why I ended up as an economist and not a lawyer, which I think was a good ethical choice as well as... Uh, <laughs> um, thank you, it was a joke. I, I, lawyers, some of my best friends are lawyers. Um, when I look at the numbers, and I have been a model builder all my life, I'm not, a, I'm not a climate denier, but I would say that the models need to be recalibrated. We have had a pause in warming. That was not predicted by the models. If you go back to the um, 1995 uh, IPPC report, they had in there a chart with a 95% confidence interval of what temperatures would be in 2015. We are at the very bottom of that 95% confidence interval. Stated differently, the UN gave us 39 to 1 odds that it would be warmer in 2015 than it actually was. I'm sorry, as a data guy, and I see that kind of number, I say, I gotta go back and recalibrate. Now that 39 to one odds even includes the three quote data revisions that were done, i.e. where they raise temperatures in order to boost the result. So this really isn't statistical science the way I learned it. So the first thing I think we need to do is to be more honest about the statistics here. 
You'll note that Senator uh, Whitehouse and others, attorney generals across the country, now want to use the RICO statutes to punish people who fund people who uh, write programs that disagree with the consensus. Really? Racketeering? That's called free speech. But that shows how extreme. So why I get nervous about this is I see a ruling class not following the rules of statistical science, wanting to persecute using the law those who disagree with them, and who manage to constantly come up with solutions that enhance their power. So I don't necessarily say I'm a denier. I think climate change is a study that we should definitely spend resources on. But I'll tell you, when I look at the other facts and knowing how bureaucracies behave, this does not pass the smell test with me. Thank you very much. So I guess we have time for one more. So way in the back. Samar Chatterjee Safe Foundation. Sir, uh, uh, Dr. Lindsay, I liked your suggestion of maintaining the social security at the current benefit level forever or indefinitely, uh, inf inflation protected. Um, uh, however, I didn't quite get what the methods were. Do we have to forego our massive expenditures in the war, wars that we continuously go through but pretty much frivolously, and do we have to end our massively expensive and obscene uh, national security state in order to do that? Oh, I'm yes going to no. <laughs> say the same thing about um, numbers as I said about climate change numbers. And if you know my history, I had a little, the reason I'm in the private sector is I, um, I said to a reporter what I thought the Iraq war was going to cost, because um, I had thought it was going to be, we were going to be you out were completely of there wrong. in two and a half years, yes. <laughs> I was at <laughs> roughly four times the, the, the whisper number that the Pentagon was out, and that was a vile, oh, I was just doing terrible things. I really think that there was a case of, of not quite dishonesty, but, but not sort of not full disclosure. Essentially, the Pentagon number was how much it would cost to bring down Saddam. And I said, well, okay. My number was, yeah, you're going to bring down Saddam, and then, you know, you got to hang around for a little bit. And my year was two years. We ended up being there 10, and that's why I was wrong on the number. Well, I couldn't guess that part. Okay. That said, and even though I firmly believe in honesty about costs of things, the actual cost of Iraq and Afghanistan, the run rate was about eight, eight billion a month, 100 billion a year. That is what we spend every year on cosmetics and beauty care. So those big engagements, the cost of them were cosmetics and beauty care. Is that affordable? Yeah, I think it's affordable. Whether or not it's passed the cost-benefit test, gosh, you know, that's beyond my kin and, you know, other people should be involved in the discussion. So the answer is yes, we should be honest and we weren't being honest. Is it affordable? 
yeah, in the general scheme of things, it's affordable, but that doesn't mean that it should be done. If it's affordable, it shouldn't be done. If it's affordable, you need to consider costs and benefits. So uh, let's say one more thing before we break. I mean, uh, I didn't, I'm much more optimistic, I think, after this event than I was coming in. Uh, Dr. Lindsay is... You talk today and everything. It has a long experience at the highest levels of government and private sector. And clearly, he's not anywhere near as freaked out as I am about the events of 2016 in this country. So what that does is tell me that I'm freaking out, and maybe I should adjust my beliefs to closer to his. So that's, that's, a, real, uh, that's a real advantage from that. Well, that's a very nice optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much to Dr. Lindsay for presenting, to John Samples for commenting, and to all of you for coming. Thank you very much. <laughs>